Growing up in Ferguson, Missouri, Stanley Andres began making poor decisions at a very young age. He started selling dope and was arrested for the first time at 14 years old. By his early 20s, dope dealing had exponentially multiplied, and he had found himself sitting in front of a judge facing 20 years to life on drug trafficking charges. The judge sentenced him to 10 years in a maximum security prison. Upon release and after several rejections, Stanley was accepted to a PhD program. He completed his PhD and MBA simultaneously and became an endocrinologist and impactful leader at John Hopkins Medicine, specializing in diabetes research. Dr. Andres is an executive director and founder of From Prison Cells to PhD and a board member on the formerly incarcerated College Graduates Network. His book, From Prison Cells to PhD, It Is Never Too Late to Do Good, recounts his inspiring story. Contrary to popular belief, most drug dealers are everyday, regular people. Happy birthday, yelled a coalition of voices, confetti popped, party blowers blew, and voices were cheering loudly and excitedly as my twin nieces, Tierra and Alana, walked through the door, both wearing adorable puffy princess dresses. My precious little angels were turning four, February 2004. Uncle Stan, Uncle Stan, we missed you. I love you so much. Thank you for coming to our birthday. Not make it to my precious little angel's birthday party? I exclaimed in an inquisitive voice, my sideways face looking directly into their bright brown eyes and big smiles. What? I wouldn't miss your birthday party for the world, baby. My brother Will came over laughing at me and bumped me out of the train to dap me up and give me a hug. He greeted me with a big smile. Thanks for making it out, fam. I can't believe the girls are four already. My entire college life has been a blur. Playing basketball and raising infants at the same time. Man, it's crazy. He stopped, looked at the girls playing with their cousins and shook his head in enchantment at their beauty and the great job he'd done raising them. But also at the same time in frustration. Now I'm back in the STL, I gotta get paid, my dude. Like, these little girls eat like monsters, man. I gotta get some bread in my pockets. He looked over at me, shaking his head again. Let me shut up. How you been, man? You still doing your thing? I see you out here taking trips to Jamaica and MIA and shit. I see you, fam. I'm tempted to jump in the game with you. Business was booming. At the height of my hustle, I was profiting easily over $100,000 per month or two as a 19-year-old college kid. As my brother and I walked out the house, my Versace shades now covering my drooping eyes, I looked back over at him in a calm, cool, and collected tone. I told him, this ain't no game for a family man, bro. I couldn't do that to you. I couldn't do that to the fans. Dr. Stanley Andres, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you dedicated the book From Prison Cells to PhD to your father, your first mentor. And this book is really a celebration of mentorship and the ability to, as I understand, change yourself and not be defined by how others see you. Tell us how you came to that. Again, it's a pleasure to be here. And the book, as you mentioned, is dedicated to my father, as I just read, but a phrase that he used to tell me in Haitian Creole, which is, which the English translation is, it is never too late to do good. The more accurate translation is, it's never too late to reach your full potential. And it's 
never too late to do the right thing. This is something that my father used to tell me as I was getting deeper and deeper involved in the criminal legal system. And as I'll talk a little bit about a formerly incarcerated person, to go back to the, the inspiration behind this and how my father was a big part of that. Going into prison, I very much felt this sense of hopelessness. And my father had this idea way before even I was convicted and sent to prison that he had this belief that I would one day see the value that I can bring to myself. And he believed that one day I would see that. And it's a strong message for the criminal legal system in that the system essentially as this prosecutor is trying to do, which was sentenced to be 20 years of life, the system has, you know, sentences people to extremely long periods of time, mostly based on the idea that they can't change. They don't believe in their uh, ability to make change and, and be a different person. So they feel that, you know, the system feels that we need to put them away and lock them in a cage for a very long period of time. My father was this idea that, you know, I understand you're making some really bad choices now, but I believe that you will one day come to understand and see it and that you can change and that you can bring good into this world. Unfortunately, I, uh, my father passed away before I had the opportunity to really fully have him understand that I, I started to see and understand that message. Yeah, so it's powerful. I want to go in later to your experience is being incarcerated and what's that like, how you can summon it within yourself with the deprivation and still find you didn't come from a background of science. You taught yourself how to read these scientific papers while you were incarcerated with none of the access that one would have at university. And it just speaks to your resilience that we see in your memoir. Even before you were incarcerated, there was this kind of determination and drive turned towards a different direction. Yeah. And, you know, to, to speak a little bit to that, when I went into prison, I had been going through this process of the way the system sees pretty much anyone that goes to the system, but specifically people that happen to be my skin tone, my sentencing day, I can recall the prosecutor and, and defense attorney kind of going back and forth. The prosecutor was painting this picture of me being this dangerous threat to society. And all of these things, it wasn't as if she was making things up. A lot of it was true. I had been making some very poor decisions. And it just culminated in me feeling as if I was just scum. I was this, you know, less than human, terrible thing. And when the judge came down with their 10-year sentence, it was just this shocking thing that had me thrown aback for a moment. And when I finally came back to, I asked the judge if I could, you know, hug my mother. And the judge denied me the opportunity to hug my mom, who at this point was bawling in tears in the, in the back of the courtroom. And... It was kind of this moment that I realized that the system intentionally needs to dehumanize individuals in order to put them in cages. I, I don't know why, you know, we would decide to treat humans like animals and putting them in cages and doing the different things that we do to people who are incarcerated. So it's almost like a necessity to say, well, we're putting you in a cage because you're actually not human. And it was, it just kind of hit me at that moment. I kind of thought there was justice in the criminal justice system and that there was care for people like humanity within the system. And in that moment, it kind of hit me. 
there wasn't. In fact, it's the opposite. In order for the system to work the way it does, it needs to dehumanize the people that it puts in these cages. And so I went in feeling completely deflated and hopeless and, you know, feeling like my life was over. And it was, you know, this mentor that stepped into my life tied with my father who almost immediately over the course of about two years, went through a number of surgeries and hospitalizations and eventually ended up losing his battle with type two diabetes. And it was that really drew me into being interested in learning about diabetes. And it was this mentor who helped provide those scientific articles and kind of helped me through learning and reading and self-teaching like through these very difficult texts. But in that process, it was this, you know, epiphany moment, this moment of change in myself that I started to feel human again. I started to feel that I could turn my life around and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life at that point, but I knew that this wasn't what I wanted to do. And the other thing that those scientific articles did was, you know, because they were so difficult, they took a long time to read without any resources like dictionaries and book clubs and journal clubs and uh, helping other people helping you digest it. It would take, you know, weeks, even months to go through just one article. But what that did was, you know, although my body was physically locked in prison cell, my mind was freely roaming around the human cell. And I fell in love with that learning that still sticks with me today. And again, I didn't know where it was going to take me. At that point, I wasn't trying to get out and, and become what I am now. I had fallen in love with learning about the human cell and physiology, but it was that that motivated me to change and this mentor that was pushing me to continue my education, which I eventually put together a number of applications before I was even released to continue my education and was rejected from all of those places except for St. Louis University, where he was on the admissions committee. From there, I got into St. Louis University and completed my uh, PhD and MBA simultaneously at the top of my class, eventually moved on to those places that I mentioned, Hopkins, Howard, Georgetown, Imperial, and, and sitting where I am today. But along that journey, I encountered a number of roadblocks and challenges and hurdles, and there really wasn't any roadmap. And I had really no true source of understanding how to get through this. I had a good support system and I had mentors so I realized that is one of the keys to get through these hurdles that nobody has a roadmap. And that was the motivation behind starting the organization is that if you give people just a little bit of support and mentorship, most of the time they already have what's, they already have it within them to be what they want to be. They just need a little bit extra support. And, and what I found is a lot of people in prison have zero support. They have no one in their family who's ever been through college or even inspired and thought that it was a place for them. So, you know, no one has that understanding. And what I found was that, you know, education is not the end all be all, but what it is, it's this vehicle to go from this place of hopelessness and despair to a place of self-value and self-worth and, and, feeling, and feeling like you have purpose in this work. And I think that you highlight as well the rates of recidivism if you've attained that higher education and that real commitment to that just go right down because I mean you must have seen the loop. Yeah, right. And you know I was not aware of the numbers uh, when I first 
noticed the impact and had was inspired to start the organization. But of course, from starting the organization, I started to learn more about the data and the data is just very clear. So I had the qualitative data already of my experience and some of the experiences of the other people I was working with, but the quantitative data is even more compelling than some of the qualitative. The quantitative data shows that about three out of four people that step out of prison will step back into prison. So somewhere around 40 to 75%, depending on how it's calculated, will go back to prison within uh, one to three years. If that person simply steps foot on a college campus, it drops it down into the teens. If they get an associate's degree, it drops it down to 13%, a bachelor's degree, 5%, and a master's degree or higher, it's less than 1%, essentially eliminating the possibility of returning to prison. So it, it seems like such a no-brainer. Like when you add the quantitative data that I've just mentioned, and then the stories behind how people like myself and so many others that are part of our organization's network, when you hear their stories of how education just helped them reinvent themselves, help them rewrite their stories, it doesn't make sense why we wouldn't be pouring tons and tons of money to support efforts that help increase access uh, and opportunities to higher education for people who've been through the system. Yeah, or even before that, too, to break the school-to-prison pipeline and just the inequalities that lead to it. And what I found interesting about your story is that we've heard there's a great literature of incarcerated people like Soldad Brother, the prison letters of Eldridge Cleader, or um, the Ballad of Reading Jail. We think about prison as a place where sometimes people have gone in and you know, found music or even visual arts. I don't know if you know the work of Nicole Fleetwood and what she's done with incarcerated artists, but I've never heard the story of incarcerated young scientists or young doctors. That's a, a more unusual story. And I think it requires uh, more perseverance. Yes, I have not met another formerly incarcerated medical school professor, particularly one that is openly talks about their incarceration history. Now, there could, you know, of course, be folks that don't talk about it as openly as I do because, you know, there's this stigma to it. It's actually, I believe our organization has done a great job of changing that narrative, helping people understand that there's value in being your full self and telling your story. Our organization gets about 400 applications per year. We've been in operation for about five years now, and we have about 100 people that can our program. We call it the formerly and currently incarcerated men and women that completed scholars. So we have about 100 scholars that complete per year. There's 35 different states represented within those group of individuals and several countries from around the world represented within those individuals. And we have, so we have a good understanding of where people are and what they're trying to do. Now, within our network, we have several people that are pushing toward, we, we've we received uh, five and a half million as a partnership grant from the National Science Foundation to start something called STEM Ops, STEM Opportunities in Prison Settings. It's a partnership with prisons and professionals, the organization I co-founded, Princeton, Vanderbilt, Education Development Center, and Operation Restoration. And from that, we're hoping to really change what you just said, help more individuals that want to pursue STEM education and also creating the pipelines and infrastructure to help them move into those places. What we've discovered is STEM just alone, without any type of incarceration, there's this myth that it's only reserved for certain people, mostly white 
and Asian males. And, you know, so people of color just in general, without any type of incarceration history are less represented and is believed that they're, for whatever reason, whether it be are they intelligent enough, are they capable enough, do they have resources, access, they're underrepresented. So we recognize that and we want to help change that. This interview with Dr. Stanley Andrees holds a special place in my heart. Growing up in America from a low-income background as a first-generation student, I remember facing many difficulties in school, especially with imagining my future, because, as I was told from early on, college would be the greatest financial burden on my family. I remember my parents doing whatever they could at their shop to earn enough for our family and a penny extra for my college savings. In high school, I found a program dedicated to helping marginalized youth get to the colleges of their dreams with incredible financial aid. This program assisted me in the college process, reviewed my essays and applications, and became a great support system for me as a first-generation student. Learning about Dr. Andres' Prisons to Professionals program and the newly started STEM Ops program reminded me of my college process, and it warms my heart to see more programs dedicated to aiding youth and leveling the playing field of the education system. Another part of Dr. Andres' work that is not as discussed as much in the interview is his book titled From Prison Cells to PhD, It Is Never Too Late to Do Good. The book goes over Dr. Andres' time in prison, what forces led him to be incarcerated, and how he held fast to his humanity while stuck in a system that was determined to take his humanity away from him. While this book does focus on Dr. Andres' life, the context given at the beginning of the book about racism, classism, and the stigmatization of drugs in America are a reminder to the audience of the societal factors that shape a person's life. For me, the context underscores the amount of willpower, hope, and resilience that Dr. Andres and others who have been incarcerated must hold to resist against the prison system that, as Dr. Andres explains, dehumanizes people for control. It is a deeper look inside the prison system, and I hope readers will not only find the book to be an inspiring story for change, but also as a reminder of the flaws of the legal system and prison system in America. I wanted to ask a follow-up question about the Prison to Professionals program as well as the STEM Ops program. So whenever you were starting these programs for equal opportunity and equal access, what were some highlights and challenges with starting both of these programs and what was the reward that came out of starting these programs? Yeah, I would say in terms of the organization, Prisons Professional started first, of course, and it was started out of this need to set a roadmap for folks. And so we put together this roadmap towards obtaining higher education that helps people build a sense of purpose and value. When we started Peak2P, it started as myself and a couple other people I was incarcerated with. One of the guys was a close friend of mine when I was having this epiphany that I was telling you about. In prison, I finally got to the point that I was like, you know what, when I get out, I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. And, you know, he was looking at me crazy as we're sitting in prison. He's like, what are you talking about? Do you know any people who've been to prison that are doctors? Like, what? Like, what? And then when I got out and it started happening, he was inspired to use education as this transformative tool. And then we started helping others that we were incarcerated with. But then when we actually founded the organization, we knew that we couldn't just be on the ground doing direct services that we needed to be working on policy as well and changing the laws and policies and ways that people access and the opportunities. So we started a policy initiative to ban the box or remove the criminal conviction from employment and education. And from that, my story got picked up by the Washington 
posts and, and subsequently spiraled into a bunch of different news articles from PBS to NBC to ABC and, and different things of that nature, but also people learning more about what we do and connecting to leaders in the field that actually put together our board of directors, which is made up of leaders from all across uh, the country. And it was there that we began to understand that within prison education, most of the people in the space are not formally incarcerated. So they're people that are academics mostly. And, and what it tends to be actually is white female faculty or professors at universities that are passionate about bringing education to help and change lives. But what the data shows is that they somehow believe that what they need is to be counselors and drug addiction majors because you were a drug addict. So you probably want to be a drug addiction counselor. So they were kind of funneling people into the career pathways that they didn't necessarily want. And actually out of a good several dozen programs across the country, none of them were offering STEM. None of them were pushing to have people do calculus and physics and different things of that nature. And so we saw that gap. So the STEM ops, you know, our organization was pushing for that. Then Princeton heard about us wanting to do this. And, and then they reached out to us and then we put together the grant and the, the folks that are part of it. But it was really just realizing that there was this gap in the field and no one was pushing. Even people that had the best interest for people incarcerated just didn't see them quite qualified enough to push for STEM degrees. And so we sought to change that. Oh, it's so empowering. And yeah, you're right. There's a certain funneling into offering therapy or maybe even the arts and those kind of things. And it's really challenging. So what are some of the questions that you would ask your candidates? How do you work with them? Is there then a follow-on mentorship where they may be going into schools or other areas so that they can lead by example? Yeah, that's a great question. So we now are at this critical mass of people who've gone through the program. So since the very beginning, we were recruiting scholars and recruiting mentors. We, we see ourselves as a re-entry organization that's focused on education and mentoring. But early on, it was a little more difficult to build this body of mentors. But now almost 90% of those people that go through the program, we transition them into the mentors. So the, the program is a one-year program where there's about 10 to 12 weeks or, you know, about three months worth of weekly workshops and programming to build soft skills like resume writing, personal statement writing, how to do a job interview, how to tell your story, how to be a strong college student, or how to be a strong employee at places that don't necessarily have infrastructures to understand who you are. So first 12 weeks are things like that and financial management, mental health, and a, a bunch of kind of wraparound things. After the first weeks, the next 10 months is an individualized mentoring and coaching on a weekly basis. We connect them to at least three individuals, one of which is a formerly incarcerated person. And then one person is a specific to the field that they're looking to get into. And then one person serves as this educational accountability partner or tutor that helps them through like the challenging academic aspects. And so we are at this point of critical mass where we're transitioning 90% of our people who both our scholars into mentors. So we've built this network of scholars and mentors that is just continually growing. And we've built it in a way that people feel like family. There's no other space that they go to 
where there's this large group of individuals that understand them the way that this group does, that understands the challenges that they face, that understands why it's so hard to talk about it at family dinners and, and, and different things like that, that they only feel that they can get from here. So we've built this sense of family that is now continually growing and spreading. So we should say, for those who cannot see, how old is your son now? He is five months and two days. What is having a son now, of course, having your organization, but having a son, how does that help you refocus? So I have my five-month-old son with me. I I also have a three-year-old daughter, and and my son is named after my dad. It's the work of hands much greater than ours and uh, a higher power. My my daughter was born on the exact 10-year date of my sentencing. So I was sentenced to 10 years and exactly uh, 10 years later, you know, my daughter was actually born and it was kind of the closing, which officially closed out my sentence. It was this moment of this change in chapters in my life, just in, in so many different ways. And she allowed me to be completely free from the criminal legal system. I had this new purpose in life and that was her. And, you know, being a father to, to her and, and now to him has just been the greatest joy and, and also one of my greatest accomplishments. <laughs> so it's just fantastic to be a father and we hope to instill that sense of loving people into them and, and hopefully they can be that small piece of change in the world that we at the organization seek. It's very beautiful. I want to go in. I will, we readers will explore the whole inspiring story. And, you know, just to give uh, listeners a flavor of also what your parents went through to come from Haiti, there were periods of homelessness and endurance. Describe that. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. I, as amazing as my story, some folks feel is, I, I think the immigrant story of, of my parents and just many other immigrants to this country is just incredible. And, and the challenges that they faced and endured and overcome is really just an understatement for me to share a few words on. But, you know, Haiti is the first Black nation in the world to have gained its independence from European colonization. And in that process, just to give a quick history, as they gained their independence from France and Napoleon, who was thought to be the greatest general in the world at the time and beating France was like, how could this black nation do that? And so for years they were penalized for that. And subsequently, as the word is called blackball from world trade, because of that became the world's poorest country. And so I think there needs to be that understanding that Haiti is not the world's poorest country because of poor leadership, as many think the picture to be, they were in many ways forced into this because of what they did for the world and changing the United States also. We, we may not be where we were without that victory of Haiti. But nonetheless, that resulted in, of course, a, a century and a half later, my parents enduring one of the most difficult times of Haiti's history under the semi-dictatorship of the Duvaliers and just enduring some very challenging situations that motivated them to come to the United States. And in doing that, just fled and 
came with very little resources and my family bounced around from, you know, Miami to New York to Detroit and eventually landing in St. Louis. And we kept bouncing around. My, job, my dad would find a job. And at the time, telling folks that you're an Asian immigrant, you know, Haiti was not only the poorest country, it was also seen as a country of less than human. He had some challenges finding employment and we had periods of uh, homelessness. And we were fortunate enough that some church going folks really uh, helped us out at one particularly critical point where they were considering going back to Haiti. And that resulted in my dad finding a job in St. Louis and me being born. It was a blessing that I was born where I was born and fortunate enough that my family moved to a little bit of stability, although we were you know, still basically in poverty at that particular time. And speaking of giving, during the Great Depression, Haiti gave like a million dollars to America, one of the first, like it's a big gift. So when you think about the change of, of fortune, so there's a lot of generosity and then the warriors. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can see that you come from this lineage of brave and resilient people, as I just know a little bit of the history. Yeah. I, I really appreciated learning about how your family came over and went through all that and overcame it. And we see it today in you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And American history does a disservice to not integrate that more into who we are as a country. So I appreciate you asking that question and having looked that up to gain that but, you know, deeper appreciation. And so in close, as you think about the future and you think about this upcoming generation and the kind, the kind of world you want to live in, what life lessons have been important to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I would leave the message of my dad and the title of my book that it is never too late to do good. And I would implore young people to be patient, patient in their selves and patient in the understanding of the world. And I know that's challenging uh, to do as a young person. And even more so, I would implore the adults in young people's lives to be patient with that individual and have the understanding that it is never too late. The challenges that they face can be overcome and just support them, love them, and believe in them. Exactly. We don't even know ourselves when we're the age that you were, when you're incarcerated, we're always changing. We always have that capacity to change. So thank you, Dr. Stanley and Dries, for your example that shows us that through hard work, resilience, determination, and courage, each of us can change our lives and we don't have to accept the narratives that people put on us. We can rewrite our stories. And for all that you do at from prison cells to PhD to help create opportunities, thank you for helping make the world a better place for future generations and adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast is Julianne Ho. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.